Howdy, folks. This is the Words of Truth from the Scriptures podcast. I'm Brian Yeager. I'm glad that you've tuned in to listen. Today, we're going to be continuing our series in 1 Peter. Our lesson today is going to be on 1 Peter 1, 8, and 9 that we'll be talking about here in just a few moments. Let me give you a little heads up before we get into our study. I'm suffering from some allergy issues as I sit down to record this uh, podcast and got the best that I could get up to this point, so I might have some sniffles and maybe even an occasional sneeze, uh, but I'm okay. I just ask that you bear with me. I know that it can be annoying to hear all that on the other end of the recording, but I've come down to the time where I needed to go with the recording. So we're going to start off our study thinking about the situation of the first century. In the first century, there were those that had personally known Jesus, had contact with him, like Peter, who is writing this epistle. He spent a few years with Jesus, but the people whom he is writing, as we see in 1 Peter 1, 8, whom having not seen, ye love, did not have that personal interaction with Jesus. And we see that in other epistles. And the 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show it unto you, that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. So you could see there are those writing who have personal experience among Jesus, who have had personal interaction among Jesus. Well, not being present with Jesus, the, Peter, the people that Peter is addressing here are similar to everyone today. We've not had any personal interaction with Jesus. So our faith truly does not come through what we have seen but rather through what we hear. And that's huge. That's significant. In Romans chapter 10, 8 through 17, but what saith, the word is nigh to thee, even in thy mouth and thy heart. This is the word of faith which we preach, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all them that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful of the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the people that are addressed in 1 Peter are like you and I. Their faith is based upon hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That faith that occurs comes through truly receiving the word of God. Think about the language in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul, Savanus, and Timothy write to the saints in Thessalonica, for this cause also, <coughs> excuse me, 
For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you've heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word of God that works because you believe it, it works effectually in you and it brings forth fruit. Think about the language to the saints in Colossae in Colossians 1, 4 through 6. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love which you have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up before you in heaven, where you've heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it has in the old world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. So that faith in the word of God, the love that coupled with it, we'll kind of combine some of those points in this podcast and our study today, and the hope what you have in heaven, where, where'd you get that? You heard it in the word of the truth of the gospel. Word, truth, gospel synonyms, right? Word, truth, gospel. It wasn't through skillful preaching of men. When Paul wrote the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he said, Am I, brethren, when I came to you, came not in excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God? For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power of God, the gospel. Not like, hey, some awesome preacher came through and we heard him declare things in such a way and present them. Nope, nope, nope. Faith through the word of God not the presentation of the word of God. Like in the first century, though, there are those people, and we will certainly talk about this to a degree in our study as well, who have that, that mentality of, I'm not going to believe what I can't see. In John 4, 46 through 48, Jesus came again in the Cana of Galilee when he made the water, where he made the water wine. There was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, folks, that person who has to see is not going to be saved because faith comes through God's word. Remember what we read in Romans 10, 8 through 17, specifically Verse 17, what was written that we have now, the gospel, the word of God, is all that we need to have genuine faith. If you take, for example, the book of John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. He's talking about the letter he wrote there. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. What's written is written so that we can believe, that they could believe. In 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you 
that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. So for us believers, not just the conviction initially, but for those of us that are believing, it, believers, things are written so that we might continue to believe and that we might know that we have eternal life. Now let's think about some evidence. Why do you trust the Word of God? I don't know about you, but I did not hear preaching of the Word of God for the very first time and just say, oh, okay, I'm going to obey. I, I, how do I know this isn't the words of men? That some clever dudes didn't just sit down one day and say, you know what? We want to go out here and convince the world of, of a man named Jesus. So let's, let's just put together all kinds of writings and a false documentary of history, and let's, let's certify it as God's Word. Well, there are things in the, in the Word of God that were shown to me before I obeyed the gospel that convinced me that these were not the words of mere men. Things that you couldn't have known or guessed, and, and I'm going to give you a few things. I'm going to give you what, what I'm going to call evidences in the Scriptures, because you might guess one thing, or you could say one thing is true, and it's it's because you you read it a certain way, or it was poetic language, and it just turned out to be okay. Well, I'm going to give you several things. Like, for example, in Job 26 and verse 7, which is one of the earliest, if not earliest, writings uh, in the Bible, it says, He stretch out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. How did man know that four plus thousand years ago? Well, it's just coincidence. Okay. Isaiah 40, verse 22. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,700 years ago. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretch out to the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. How did man know the earth was round? Man didn't know that. I mean, they were sailing the earth in the 1400s to figure out if you would fall off the edge, right? There were people prior to the first century that theorized the earth was round, but they didn't know. God states it as fact. Okay, Brian, that's two things. But maybe that's just all coincidental. Let me give you one of the most convincing things uh, for me and, and that was presented to me many years ago, back when I obeyed the gospel back in 1990. How about you're sitting in science class and you're learning that rain comes from bodies of water that that water evaporates into the sky, forming clouds, and those clouds pour out water upon the earth, and that has been called the water cycle. On well, Ecclesiastes 1.7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Hmm, interesting, right? Ecclesiastes 11.3, if the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth, if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there shall it be. Okay, tree point, 
obvious one. Clouds full of rain with Ecclesiastes 1, 7, 11, 3, you're starting to see something. Boy, does the exclamation point get made later, though. In Amos 9 and verse 6, it is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven. He hath founded the troop in the earth. He calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. That's just too much to be coincidence. Okay, well, you've given us three things here. Maybe they're all just still poetic coincidences. What do you say about Job 38, 16? Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea, or hast thou watched in the search of the depth? How in the world did one of the earliest writings in the Bible, how did they know that there are springs in the sea? Hmm. Folks, you could go on and on. There's other things. Talk about why were children uh, circumcised on the eighth day for the ability of blood clotting, so forth and so on. It's just too many things that man didn't know until the 1800s and 1900s through scientific technology that are recorded in the Bible. And when we, when we look at the arrogancy of man's wisdom... Man thinks you got they got everything figured out. You know, remember back just a few years ago, COVID is hitting. Science is saying this is true, this is true, this is true. Many of which, most of which, all has now been exposed not to have been true. Remember the guarantees? You will not get COVID if you get this vaccine or this vaccine. Then it was, well, you'll still get COVID, but it won't be as bad. Remember all the deaths, the body bags and all these things, emergency rooms full of, of coolers and so forth and so on, all these things that happen, and yet, looking back now, they're saying maybe some of those numbers are inflated. My wife and I, you know this about us if you know me, um, when we uh, try to fall asleep at night, sometimes we'll turn on a nature show. Uh, stream it. Um, I, I love to look at God's creation, love to learn about God's creatures on earth. You know, just the other night, they were talking about how they were, science was now exploring areas of the continent of Asia and how they just found monkeys that they didn't know existed in a very cold area of, of Asia. And I looked up and there's been like in 2020, they found some new species of monkey in Asia. It was even different than what they were talking about on this show that we were watching. Uh, in Tushima Islands in 2023, this year, they found some new kind of creature as they were exploring other things. Think about how many things on Earth our all-knowing scientific uh, society finds that's new. Yet they make definitive statements as though they fully understand the ecosystem. Well, how when you don't even have all the components to make those statements? And that's why science changes. That's why, you know what? We're, we're going to call this a planet. Ah, it's no longer a planet. That's why the earth was this many years old. And then the next textbook comes out with a different number. That's why COVID was this and now it's not. That's why things change. God's word doesn't change. Heaven and earth will pass away, but our Lord's word 
will not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. When people talk about religion, there are people that will poke and say it's a fairy tale. No, man's knowledge is the fairy tale, especially when they come out and say it's of a certainty, and then it changes and changes and changes. The doctrine of evolution has changed since I was in elementary and middle school to today. So has many other things that were once stated as fact and have now been proven not to be such. In addition to scientific foreknowledge in the Bible, think about eyewitness testimony. See, God has a standard. That standard has been at least two or three witnesses. In Deuteronomy 17.6, Old Law, Moses, at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, shall he that be worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. In Deuteronomy 19.15, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, and any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. In the New Testament, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican." In 1 Timothy 5, 19, against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And there are other scriptures that we could go to as well, but I just want to show you this pattern. Two or three witnesses. Okay, so when you look at the Bible, the miracles, you know, the miraculous age has ceased. Paul said it would in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. Well, how do we know these things ever occurred? Back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, 1 through 7. It says, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep his charge, and his statutes, and his judgments, and his commandments always. And you know this day, for I speak not with your children which have not known, and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out arm, his miracles, and acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt, unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and all their horses, and their chariots, and how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued you and how the Lord hath destroyed them to this day. What he did unto you in the wilderness until ye came unto this place, what he did in Dathan and Abram and the sons of Eliab, the sons of Re the son of Reuben, how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their households and their tents and their substance that was in their possession. In the midst of all Israel, but your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Eyewitnesses, right? Psalm 78, 4. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praise of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. They saw them and they passed down their eyewitness testimony. In Acts 4, 16, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle hath been done by them, which is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. Miracles like the lame man in Acts 3 that was healed. That's what this context is talking about. A lot of people saw it. It couldn't be denied. It, there were too many eyewitnesses of what was there. In Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest any time we should let them slip. 
For the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense and reward. How shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. They saw it. It was confirmed by not only eyewitnesses, but by the Holy Spirit that did works and wonders among them. Then there's the testimonies. In Acts 2, 29 through 32, men and brethren, let me speak, speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with, him, with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades. Neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all are witnesses. David prophesied of it. The apostles experienced it, and they testified of what they saw. In Acts 3, 13 through 15, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. The apostles, Peter and John, contextually testifying what they saw as was promised to be fulfilled. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all, which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles. They am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you have believed. So Paul gives his eyewitness testimony, reaccounts of the testimony of the apostles who saw Jesus after he was risen from the dead, and then points out there are others that were alive to that day that also were witnesses. There's credibility. Two or three witnesses? No, over 500. Think about credibility. Think about credibility. A man tells you, this is the greatest product on earth. 
It's going to do this, this, and this. What's he willing to do to back that up? Well, what were the apostles willing to do? They were willing to be beaten and killed for what they saw and believed. In Acts 5, 40 through 42, to him they agreed. Contextually, Gamaliel had given advice to the council about what to do. And the council was to let them alone if the word of God was being preached by these men. If it were of God, it could not be overthrown. So they agreed to that. When they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So if this is a fairy tale, the apostles just got beaten and threatened. So this is the second time they've been arrested. They know they're not just going to be able to go out and talk about Jesus without consequences. What are they going to do? Well, it says they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. In Acts 14, 19 through 22, it says, There came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood about him, he rose up and came to the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel of that city, he taught many, returned again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Paul, even though he was stoned to the point where they were convinced he was dead, didn't stop preaching the gospel, but went and preached that those who follow would suffer. He knew what's ahead of him. He knew this isn't the easy life, but he did it anyway. Why? Faith. In Acts 21, 13, Paul answered, What mean you to weep and to break my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, or not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is when he is meeting with some brethren, and among them was Philip the Evangelist, and they were they were warning him, Hey, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. Paul said, You know what? I'm, I'm willing to be bound. And I'll go beyond that. I'm willing to die. Why? Because he was fully persuaded. In 2 Corinthians 1.5, For as the sufferings of, of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. They were comforted by our Lord because they believed. Now, folks, as we talk about whom having not seen in our study today, that is true, genuine faith. Believing. In him whom you have not seen, and being willing to go through whatever this world throws at you because of that faith. Our text, 1 Peter 1 8 9, says, Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. They love Jesus, but they've never saw him. They didn't experience him in the flesh. They didn't touch him, but they had faith. And that meant something. In Ephesians, the third chapter, 17 through 19, remember these other Gentiles we talked about in previous lesson? It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, 
being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Not seeing him, but Christ was in their hearts. By what? By faith. Remember how faith comes? Through hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17, right? So they were rooted and grounded, just like the Ephesians, rooted and grounded. They're not being moved away. Think about the relationship. I said we would talk about faith and love. Let's think about that relationship between faith and love. In Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. The two are inseparable. Both work together to bring about action. Think about them as separate components in this degree. In Hebrews 11 and verse 7, talking about faith, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is, of, which is by faith. What moved Noah? Faith. Though he had not seen rain, though moisture came up from the ground to water the earth, he had not seen rain, was warned of rain, of a flood to come through it, believed, and took action. In James, the second chapter, talking about the component of faith, 14 through 26, what doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you saying to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works." And I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So think back. We were talking about the apostles. They believed. How do we know their faith? through what they were willing to go through. They were fully persuaded. They trusted in God. Action is produced by faith. Same with love. It's why these two things work together hand in hand. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. In John 14, 23 and 24, just a few verses later, Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. My Father will love him, will come unto him, make our bow with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Faith and love are shown through action. 
through works. Then things come about from that. The love of the Father is extended to those who believe in Christ. John 16, 27, For the Father himself loveth you because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. So going backwards, how does Jesus know somebody loves him? They obey him. How does Jesus know that there is faith? Works. Somebody would say, well, Jesus knows the heart of man. Yeah, that's true. That's true too. But works show him. They're the evidence, the external evidence of what's going on inside, right? Loving Christ shows to the Father through love and faith. Then the love of the Father is extended. Well, Jesus and, and the Father, when, when we say, whom having not seen ye love, in the context that's talking about Jesus, 1 Peter 1, 8, in context talking about Jesus, but that's not to the exclusion of the Father because loving Jesus also means you love the Father. In 1 John 5, 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him. The two tie together, like faith and love, the Father and the Son. The Father has been seen by no man. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is of the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. 1 John 4.12, No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Not seen, but by Christ... So we're talking about whom having not seen, how it ties to both the Father and the Son. By Christ, we believe in the Father, right? Matter of fact, as we get down a little bit later in this context, in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, for as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Wonderful, right? By Christ, by our faith in him, whom having not seen, Jesus, ye love. Though now ye see him not, yet believing. Same is true with the Father. Through Christ, we believe in the Father. One's love for Christ love for the Father. And that love has to be genuine. In Ephesians 6, 24, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. It has to be a genuine faith and a genuine love for the Father and the Son. By knowing they love Christ and by that being stated, that tells us something about their obedience. Whom having not seen ye love, tells us something about them. How, how, Peter's making a declaration. People that love the Lord are those that obey him, like we read in John 14, 15, uh, and, and uh, 23 and 24. But in other scriptures, we see that in, also described in other ways. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge if one die for all, they're all dead. And he that died for all, 
that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So we could say, hey, their love for Christ means they're living for him. They're obedient to him. Because faith and love go hand in hand. As we see at the end of a context talking about uh, spiritual gifts ceasing, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Faith and love, hope is also there, which we've talked about in our context of 1 Peter as well, saved by hope. Uh, well, faith, hope, and love, inseparable. And like we've talked about, faith produces action. Love produces action. They go hand in hand. In Ephesians 6, 23, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith. From God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So whom, in, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though ye seem not yet believing. Hand in hand. They're not, that, somebody can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't believe in him. Nor can they say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't love him. Nor the extensions of what we've been talking about. If you say you believe in him, you're going to move with action. If you say you love him, you're going to move with action. Love tied together in faith. In 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul says to Timothy, Hold fast the form or pattern of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. To Philemon, Paul said in Philemon verse 5, Hearing of thy faith, or I'm sorry, thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Love and faith. In 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul says, Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Faith and love. Wonderful. Tied together inseparable. If I love him, it's because I believe in him. If I believe in him, it's because I love him. In inseparable. And like we talked about, contextually, if I believe and love him, I hope in him too. The saints in this letter, whom having not seen, believed. Let's think about that. Jesus made some statements in John chapter 20, 24 through 29, for example. Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Notice what Jesus says. 
Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. How marvelous. Folks, the people that Peter is writing to are just like you and I in this regard and whom he have not seen yet believing. Those saints, like some in the first century, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it's a side point in the uh, context for we walk by faith, not by sight. Whether it just kind of take a sidestep here with me, not to change the subject, but how did people that did not, or rather, let me rephrase. How did people who actually saw the resurrected Christ still walk by faith? Think about this. They haven't been to heaven, have they? They haven't seen the Father, have they? Have they? So whether they walked and talked with Jesus or not, there's still a degree in which they believe and hope in that which is not seen. The hope of eternal life? Nobody's in heaven with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the angels right now, nor in the past. They walk by faith, not by sight. Not in Jesus himself, but in the promises of the Lord. And to walk by faith, is to do and love as though you have seen, whom having not seen, you love, and whom through now you see him not, yet believing. Think about Hebrews chapter 11, 23 through 27. There's a wonderful statement here. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he's come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt. Notice this not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He walked by faith as though he had seen. Well, what is faith? Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's not blind. Not, not People talk about blind faith. No, it's not blind. And to come to full circle... That faith, it doesn't come through seeing. To think about Jesus' words to Thomas that we read. To think about Romans chapter 10, 8 through 17 that we read. Put it into practice something that Jesus taught looking at paradise and torment. In Luke 16, 19 through 31, the Hadean realm, Hades, says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously Every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who was laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. 
And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, here that should be Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest the good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send to my father's house. So listen to this discussion. For I have five brethren that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. There's the power of the word of God. The just live by faith. Well, how do they obtain that faith? Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It has always been through the word of God. That faith, that saving faith equips us. Like in 2 Corinthians 1 24, where it says, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers for your joy. For by faith ye stand. Folks, it is by faith through the word of God that we are able, like the saints that Peter is addressing here, to love, to believe, as we will go on and talk more about to have joy, to have the end of salvation. Seeing is not believing. In Matthew chapter 11, 20 through 24, says, Then began he, being Jesus, to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Did you hear that? He did many works, but what happened? They didn't repent. Hey, think about what Lazarus said to the rich man. I mean, not what Lazarus said to the rich man, what Abraham said to the rich man. Jesus goes on, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it should be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And now Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it remained unto this day. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. The, the, the great works didn't cause these people to repent. And John 12, 36 and 37, he says, While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Israel of old, the gospel, we read earlier, and he, you know, oh, wait, I don't think we read this. In Hebrews 4, 1 and 2, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us, 
entering into rest, any of you should come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard him. When, when you think about Hebrews 4, 1 and 2, you had people there as uh, the Hebrew writer is looking back and he's talking about the people that in Numbers 13 and 14 had been made to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because God's word wasn't believed by them. That generation had to die off. That's a shame, isn't it? The word was preached, but not mixed with faith. Why? Seeing is not believing. They saw many wonderful works in Egypt and coming up out of Egypt. But that wasn't enough. Even being in the presence of Jesus and being taught about him. Think about what we read about Thomas. Thomas wasn't convinced until he could actually physically see and feel the evidence. Prior to Jesus giving the great commission to the apostles, as it's often called, in Matthew 28, 16 and 17, the 11 disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus pointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But notice, but some doubted. In Luke 24, the resurrection of Christ context, 10 and 11, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and and other women that were with them, which told the things unto the apostles. And their words seemed unto them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Eyewitnesses that Jesus wasn't in the tomb anymore, as he foretold the apostles, they still didn't believe. And John 16, 16 through 33, Jesus talking to his disciples, says, a little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, what is this that he said unto us, a little while, and you shall not see me? And again, a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith, a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said to them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while and you shall not see me? And again, a little while and you shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow should be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is brought into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy shall no man take from you. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask in the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken to you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall speak, un, when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I will show you plainly of the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I am come out of God." I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure 
that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, and is now come, that you should be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I am overcome the world. Listen, they express faith. And to a degree, they did believe, but not fully. <laughs> Yet they had been with him for years. They saw miracles. They saw devils cast out. They saw Jesus walk on water, calm storms. Peter, James, and John saw the transfiguration. They saw the dead raised, the sick healed. <laughs> and yet, confessing with their mouths, and multiple times, not just here, yet still weren't fully convinced. <laughs> the words that Jesus is risen was like idle tales. Folks, Seeing is not believing. That's why faith has always and will always come through the Word of God. Now let's talk about the joy that comes from faith. Because the text goes on. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now the apostles, they had been with Jesus in the flesh when he was risen they would be with him again in the flesh prior to his ascension into heaven. They got to experience Christ before and Christ after his death. What about those like us and the people that Peter is addressing who didn't experience either? We still can have joy. Just like Jesus promised the apostles that in the world they might have tribulation, well, we have tribulation in the world. Where's our joy come from? Well, it's through faith. A joy that could not and cannot be expressed by words. The kind of joy that comes through the written word. Earlier, we read 1 John 1, 1 through 3. The very next verse, verse 4. says, These things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Through the word of God, written by men, moved by the Holy Ghost to write it, our joy can be full. The kind of joy that you'd give anything to have. And this is what puzzles me about the world. The world is never going to be a place of peace. It's never going to be in harmony. It's never going to be great things to look forward to. There's always going to be things on the horizon that are scary. The world, I mean, that's why there's so many alcoholics and drug addicts and people with all kinds of, of problems that they can't address. But the kind of joy we have, Matthew 13, verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure. Kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure hidden a field. The which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and sell all that he hath and buyeth that field. It's that valuable. The joy that comes from knowing kingdom citizenship and the hope of eternal life. It's Go and sell all that you have to get it. It's why the cost of discipleship, Luke 14, 25 through 33, means a willingness to give all that you have. 
because you can't be your his disciple if you're not willing to do that. And if, and if you need to, you have to. It's the kind of joy that whatever you're going through in, in this life, the joy through hope, you were able to overcome it. Remember what we read in John 16, 21? A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she delivered the child, she remembers no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born in the world. It's like that. For those of us who have seen, and for you ladies who have experienced uh, childbirth, boy, it's so true. I mean, three times I'm in the room with my beloved wife, and I'm watching her go through great, terrible pains. You know, not all women get epidurals uh, or, or different things. I, I mean, push and push and walk around in anguish and pain and the baby's not here yet. You're two centimeters and then three and then four and five. And it's like, is it, is it ever going to happen? And hours and hours later and pushing and pushing and pushing and screaming and crying and all kinds of just disgusting and terrible things happening in the process of childbirth. And then they take that little bundle of joy and all of its nasty, bloody yuckiness and lay it on mama. And mama says, oh, Trevor, Taylor, Trey. All immediate moments of joy. Like nothing ever happened. Wow. That's the joy that you have through being a Christian. That kind of joy that brings about rejoicing. You know, even in the Old Testament, just being 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 in a relationship with God. Psalm 32 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy. Ye that are upright in heart. I, I, the fact that I know, I know that eternal life is in front of me. Whatever you have to endure, however long it is on earth, it is always, in every case, temporary. And the end of that road, the end of that road, like we're going to talk about here in a little bit, the end of that road is salvation. Yeah, bring it on. Hey, world, I'm ready to battle. I'm ready to fight. Whatever it is, I know it's going to come to an end. And I know at that end, whew, whatever you've had to endure, endure in this world is going to be like childbirth. It's going to seem like it lasted forever in the moment. And then after that, whoo. I mean, I'm a man. I can't imagine, because of what I've seen, that any woman, after having the first child, I can't imagine why she'd ever want a second. And it's not just the moments of birth. I mean, those nine months, whew, man, they can be really rough. And some women, much worse than others. And yet, women still want to have two or three some women out there, you hear me, Sam Ard, want to have more. It makes no sense to me as a dude. So when this illustration is used in the scriptures, boy, it gives you a pretty good clear picture. Joy that cannot be expressed by words. Whew. That joy that is full of glory. Let's think on that. Let's think about it. What glory? Is it glory for yourself? Now, when you look at scriptures... Romans 15, 9, the Gentiles might glorify God 
for his mercy is written, for this cause I will confess thee unto the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. The Gentiles glorifying who? Not themselves, God. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. The phrase, full of glory, if you were to pull out your dictionary, I've been using Thayer's uh, in this study. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon. But Strong's number 1392, if you've got a dictionary that's numbered to Strong's. Full of glory means to think, suppose, be of opinion. To praise, extol, magnify, celebrate. To honor, do honor. To hold in honor. To make glorious, adorn with luster, clothed with splendor. To impart glory to something, render it excellent. To make renown, render illustrious. To cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. So, when we think about that, Though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Later in this letter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, 14, and 16, notice what they are told about glorification. It says, if a man, any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Verse 16. Yet if any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. We glorify God. That joy unspeakable that we can't express in words that is full of glory is to the glorification of God. In 2 Corinthians 10, 17, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now, it's, it, this would be a, a little phrase, full of glory, that you could easily just read through I'm glad we're not doing that in our studies of 1 Peter, that we're taking the time to embrace the statements that are made in this text. We need to embrace the joy we have in a way like Jesus taught it. In John 15, 11, These things have I spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. A full joy to whose glory? To God's glory. And remember where that joy comes from. Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 3.18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. So if we have the right joy and it's spiritually based because of our faith and love in Christ, because of the hope that is before us in eternity, God will be glorified in word and deed because we're always going to keep in front of us who it is that gives us that hope of eternal life. And we will never think, that it is of ourselves. So that brings us to verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So these people, having already obeyed the gospel, they are Christians already. This, this letter, like other letters written in the first century, are not written to people outside of Christ who have never obeyed the gospel. 
Now, there some of them are written to people who are outside of Christ because they've walked away from Christ. They have fallen from Christ, but all of them initially obeyed the, the gospel. We know that if we, when we get down later in this text, uh, we are going to see in 1 Peter 1, 22, seeing you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So there are people that obeyed the gospel. Just real quickly, maybe you're listening to this podcast. I'm not going to give you a full picture. That would be a whole long podcast. And based on the time I see here as I'm recording into my laptop, I've got 26 minutes left before uh, I have to end because I'm kept to a 90-minute podcast time limit by the server that hosts my uh, podcast. So let me just give you some quick things. What's it mean when I'm saying they initially or initially obeyed the gospel? Jesus to the apostles said in Mark 16, 15, and 16, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So here to be saved, faith, belief, and baptism. To be damned, just don't believe, because if you don't believe, you don't go any further. But it's not just that. I brought up earlier, Luke 14, 25 through 33, I kind of brought it up in reference. Let me give it to you in word says, there were great multitudes with him. He turned and said to them, if any man will come unto me and hate not or prefer over not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to be, build the tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he had laid the foundation, is not able to finish it, all behold to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him which cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desire conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. So faith, baptism, and not in this order, but before, in the middle, counting the cost of discipleship. I have to be willing to forsake all that I have to be his disciple. When you look at examples in, in the scripture of conversion after Jesus ascended in heaven, you can overly simplify things like Acts 2.21. shall come to pass whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's that look like? As you go down further in that context, verse 36 through 41, let all the house of Israel know surely that God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were pricked in the heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is to you to your children, all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words, that's huge here. Acts 2.40, we don't have the whole sermon. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. They that gladly received his word were baptized. Same day were added unto them about 3,000 
souls. So multiple things there, right? Call on the name of the Lord, repent, be baptized, gladly receive the word. So we have additional information as we continue to put scriptures uh, together. There's other conversion accounts. Like in Acts 8, there's two, three uh, conversions here uh, specified. And you could include uh, Simon the sorcerer and the one and just say it's two. But Acts 8, 5 through 39, multiple things there. Where Philip had gone to Samaria to preach. And then when you get down to verse 12, they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed also, and he was baptized and continued with Philip, behold, wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. If you continue to read, the apostles uh, were called upon to come down to Samaria to lay hands on them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. So here you have the preaching of the kingdom, the belief of the kingdom, baptism as a result. Later, if you go down verses 26 through 39, you've got the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading from the book of Isaiah as we know it, Isaiah 53. He doesn't understand uh, what he is reading. So Philip began at that scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And they went on their way. They came to certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest on thy heart, thou mayest. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ, Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still and went down both in the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. He went on his way rejoicing. So there you have baptism like we've seen in other accounts, but you also have him confessing his faith in Christ prior to being baptized. So as you put things together, you get a little bit more uh, details. Uh, some accounts giving more details than other accounts. Some very brief, like Acts 18.8. Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So you get separate accounts, but you put all that together because you want the whole picture. You see you know, people had faith in the Lord. They wanted to change their lives. They made the commitment to do so, counted the cost, did all these things putting together. The Lord added them to the church after they obeyed the gospel, Acts 2, 47. So you see all of that. That's initial, initial obedience. They're saved from their sins. Where we come to 1 Peter 1, 9, though, isn't coming up out of the water, being added to the church, and being a faithful servant, and then you're saved, period. No, 1 Peter 1, 9 is looking forward to the end. Not anything on earth, but what is to come. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, we get a really good picture of the fact that none of us should say, and, and, and there's a way where we could say we're saved, right? We're saved from our sins, but none of us have arrived in eternity yet, right? None of us have uh, accomplished the resurrection, I'm just going to read Philippians 3 to you because I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded through the Word of God that the Word of God is the best method of teaching, not Brian telling you what Brian thinks, but you hearing what God says because what have we learned? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So Philippians chapter 3, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have the confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath 
whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. From whom I have suffered the loss of all things, do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, after, after I apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto the things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us Therefore, as may be perfect, be thus minded. If any be any otherwise minded, God shall reveal this even unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as you have for us an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and I'll tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation, meaning citizenship there, is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's evil to subdue all things unto himself. Look at that. Perfect explanation. I haven't already obtained, Paul said, but pressing towards, going forward, the fo focal point being on the end, like to the saints in Rome. He talked to them about their baptism and things that they'd went through in Romans 6, 3 through 6, but or, and greater in the context, but later down in verse 17 through 23, he says, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sins, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your member servants to uncleanliness and to iniquity and iniquity, even so now yield your member servants to righteousness unto holiness. For you, when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So look forward. Look forward to the end of the world where, where we're told in 2 Peter 3, 9 and following, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening on the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens shall be, being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth 
righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved Paul wrote according to the wisdom given unto him, written unto you, as also in his epistle, speaking of those things in which some things are hard to be understood, that they which are unlearned and unstable rest as they do other scriptures under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things, beware, lest ye also being led away with the air of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And so this looking forward. They are the elect. You remember when we studied that in 1 Peter 1, 2? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, obedience, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. If you've not listened to that podcast, you really should listen to all these podcasts in order. They build on one another, right? They're the elect, but that doesn't mean that they were already saved for all eternity. Think about what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.10. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's looking forward. The gospel has us looking forward to when death is abolished and when we have life for all eternity. It's not saying in the now, in the immediate. That's not what our Lord is talking about. He has us looking forward, thinking about eternal life, looking forward to those things which are. And the very next chapter in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, Paul says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Looking forward, Eternal life revealed in the gospel. But even when the word elect is used, that doesn't mean that you're there. It's still to come. Salvation, folks, involves waiting, involves looking forward. Remember, we have talked about how that we are saved by hope, Romans 8, 24 and 25. But hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth. What did he hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? We're waiting for it. We're looking forward, saved by that hope. Thus, it's about continuing in the faith, being faithful. Colossians 1.23, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which I have preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. We talk about grace. What's grace teach us? What did grace teach them? Titus 2, 11 through 14, Paul writes, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Notice, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself of peculiar people, zealous of good work. Grace teaches us to live right in this present world, looking for Christ to come and salvation to come with him. So what's Jesus expect when he returns? In Matthew chapter 24, 42 through 51, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come, but know this, that if the good men of the house had known 
And what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give him meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall be ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, hour he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Salvation is to come. When Christ comes, you be ready. You be ready. Because the end of the road is where we are saved. Truly for all eternity. That's it, folks. Looking forward. Faith and love. Joy unspeakable till the return of Christ. Wherein the end of your faith is the salvation of your souls. You know what's marvelous and wonderful? Our next study is just, it's just amazing stuff. I, I love this. We're going to talk about next week, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. It's just wonderful text. A lot of things to discover and talk about. It says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which is in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Folks, we've got the word of God that the prophets who prophesied of didn't have the understanding we can have today. Things that fascinated and drew the interest of the angels. We've got it. You've got the fully revealed scriptures. Oh, how wonderful. That's what we're going to talk about next week's podcast. I'm very thankful that you've tuned in and listened to this. I hope it has been educational, edifying, challenging. If you're not a faithful child of God, I hope it has given you food for thought. I hope that you will reach out to me and that we can have a Bible study. You can call me. My number is 915-525-5794. It's in the show notes, wherever you're listening to this. You can go to my website, www.wordsoftruth.net. You can contact me through there. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to talk to you about the gospel. We can talk over the phone. Wherever you are in this world, if you've got internet access, we can talk. We can use Skype or some other uh, platform like that. We can talk. We can see each other. If you're anywhere near me, I'm in El Paso, Texas, United States of America, on the border of Mexico and New Mexico. I'll drive to meet you. Love to talk to you. We can sit down, open the Bibles. You can ask your questions, and we can see what the Lord has to say in those answers. Thank you so much for listening. If all goes according to plan, next podcast will be Tuesday. I hope you will come back and listen to that. Until then, thank you so much. Take care.